This is Macro Horizons, episode 188, Inflation Basket Case, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 12th. And with CPI on deck and the process of drilling down to the core price changes begins, we're reminded that if one hasn't been paying for food, energy, housing, hotels, airfare, transportation, apparel, healthcare, or entertainment, there really hasn't been any inflation. Air is still free, as long as you don't care about temperature or quality. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market started out with a remarkably bond-bearish performance that brought into question whether or not we actually have seen the peak for 10-year yields for the current cycle. We maintain that 350 will be the peak for this cycle, and we're encouraged that while we did see initial selling pressure, eventually the price action resolved in a period of consolidation without 10-year yields breaching that 350 level. In the event that we do see another significant round of selling between now and the end of the year in 10s and 30s, we do expect that any attempt to push 10-year yields above 350 will be met by significant resistance, and ultimately, any retest of 350 will be a buying opportunity. The Treasury market also had the benefit of a wide variety of Fed speakers. The highlights included Brainerd and Powell, both of whom left the market under the decided impression that 75 basis points on September 21st is the default position, all else being equal. Now, obviously, Tuesday's CPI print will factor into the Fed's thinking on whether or not to go 50 or 75, but if the Fed were to go today, not only have monetary policymakers suggested it would be 75, but that's also consistent with what the market's pricing in. We've long maintained that as long as the market prices in a 75% or higher probability of a 75 basis point move, that the Fed will and should take the opportunity to move three quarters of a point. The shape of the yield curve was also once again topical, this time because the market pushed back against the depths of the inversion. The initial price action occurred in the wake of non-farm payrolls and was extended on Tuesday. While twos tens never emerged out of negative territory, we did see the benchmark spread push above negative 15. Now the inversion momentum has once again picked up and we saw the curve stabilize below negative 20 basis points. We ultimately see the path of least resistance being a retest of the negative 50 to negative 60 zone, 
with better than even odds of a breakout lower. Now, our logic here is relatively straightforward. To a large extent, we're simply taking the Fed at face value. The Fed is going to move 75 in September, probably 50 basis points in November, with another capstone hike, probably smaller, in December. All of this will continue to put upward pressure on the front end of the curve, while 10s and 30s continue to be guided not solely by the macroeconomic outlook for the U.S., but instead are taking a broader approach to incorporate some of the headwinds that are already abundantly obvious for the global growth profile. To be fair, there has been a unified theme on the part of global monetary policymakers thus far in 2022, and that has been fighting inflation at all costs. Now, expectations are that this will ultimately lead to not only a slower growth outlook as well as contain inflation expectations, but increase the probability of a more material and prolonged economic slowdown. To be fair, the Fed has acknowledged the possibility of overtightening and even conceded that the path toward a truly soft landing is much narrower than it might have been earlier in the cycle. Said differently, policymakers are preparing investors for the potential for a larger increase in the unemployment rate and policy rates being held at terminal for an atypically long period, which of course is accompanied by the risk of a more material economic slowdown. Well, Ian, you and I don't often agree, but I think on this topic, we can find some common ground. It was a long, short week. It certainly was a long, short week. The Treasury market returned from the Labor Day holiday with a decidedly bearish skew. We saw a pretty significant sell-off on Tuesday. Now, ultimately, the extremes of the sell-off ended up being a fatable opportunity, particularly in the 10-year sector. But nonetheless, Tuesday's episode is worth exploring. What we initially saw was during the overnight session, 10-year yields were up 5 to 7 basis points. But once New York came online, the selling pressure accelerated. Now, this was consistent with a stronger-than-expected ISM services print, but ultimately the underlying driver was corporate issuance. There has been a lot of corporate deals brought to market, and as a result, there was a combination of rate lock selling and investors lightening up duration positions to take down the new supply. So with that context, it comes as little surprise that we saw a period of consolidation and drift lower and to some extent flatter in the curve after the extremes were absorbed. And that early bearishness that you touched on, Ian, was steepening in nature, which again was very much in keeping with this idea that most of the sell-off that was led by the long end of the curve was driven by supply, if only given the fact that along with heavy corporate issuance this week, we also got two 75 basis point rate hikes, first from the Bank of Canada and then from the ECB, with the latter also committing to raise rates further, given that the risks to inflation remain to the upside while risks to growth are definitively skewed towards the downside. Put another way, 
It's exactly that distribution of risks that points to a flatter curve. And from that perspective, the flattening follow through after we got the bulk of issuance out of the way was encouraging as an indication of the market's current reaction function in what is still a trading environment that is not quite the summer doldrums, but also given the timing of the Labor Day holiday has not quite picked back up to what we would classify as normal just yet. Not something we've ever been abundantly familiar with. Another possible explanation that was floated around for the early week selling was the idea that since September represents the first month in which the SOMA runoff will reach its maximum level, that's $60 billion in treasuries and $35 billion in mortgages, that as a result, the implied reduction of duration that's held by the Fed should lead the curve to bear steepen. Now, We'll be the first to point out that maturities out of SOMA are effectively duration neutral. However, what's more important is how the Treasury Department ultimately chooses to shift issuance as borrowing needs start to increase. And it's within that context that we'd characterize the initial bear steepening as market participants attempting to push a narrative that doesn't necessarily conform to the realities of how Yellen and the Treasury Department will ultimately shift their borrowing needs. But the one aspect of market dynamics that is feeling the fallout from the ongoing rundown of the balance sheet is liquidity in the Treasury market. And one of our favorite measures of U.S. rates liquidity is Bloomberg's government bond liquidity index that has now reached back to levels that are effectively in line with the extremes we saw since the pandemic, despite the fact that a similar shock has not yet anyway hit the market. And in conversations we've been having with clients, one of the most frequently discussed topics and complaints is that liquidity in treasuries is not particularly good at the moment. And the question along with that lament is when one might expect these conditions to improve. From the monetary policy side of things, once we get the September rate decision in hand, the September rate decision and a revised dot plot, along with a new press conference from Powell, there will presumably be at least a bit more clarity on how the Fed is thinking about their approach to terminal, how high that will be, whether that will be 2022 or 2023, which should in turn translate to a bit more conviction in secondary trading that should help improve the liquidity situation. Now, from the Treasury Department side of things, remember what we learned in the August refunding announcement and the TBAC charge that discussed the issue of buybacks and the potential for the Treasury Department to go into the secondary market and buy off-the-run bonds to, on the one hand, reduce the deficit, but also improve overall liquidity, which then in turn brings down the government's overall cost of financing. Now, while the Fed would execute the buybacks on behalf of the Treasury Department, this process would be far different from QE in that it would be money from the Treasury Department's cash balance that would be going to purchase these bonds, not money created by the Fed with the goal of stimulating the economy. But as we move further into 2023, it certainly wouldn't surprise me to continue to see this topic discussed both in the refunding announcements themselves, but also among Fed speak or any rhetoric from the Treasury Department. Yeah, Ben. And if we take a step back and we think about how the Treasury Department has shifted the landscape of trading in treasuries over the course of the last 20 years, it follows almost intuitively that at moments of stress, having disintermediated the dealership community, that liquidity would become more scarce. When we think about the buildup of the direct bidding category, combined with regulations which have made the underwriting process of the U.S. government more of a loss leader than a moneymaker per se, 
it isn't surprising to see that as a theme, less and less capital has been committed across the street. Still, nonetheless, treasuries are the most liquid fixed income instrument on both an absolute and relative basis. But these issues, while certainly contributing to the volatility we've seen, are not setting the outright level of yields, nor the shape of the curve. And the fact that we saw 10-year yields move back from that 335, 336 level and left the 350 peak that we reached in June intact does bode well for the argument that coming out of CPI and probably more importantly, the September Fed meeting, there is a building case for investors to be adding duration exposure, given the myriad of risks that are facing the domestic economy, yes, but probably more severely and importantly, the global economy. Remember, Japan has been a significant net seller of treasuries this year. We've seen the yen weaken through 144. And once that volatility subsides and we presumably start to see a change in Japanese investor behavior, as the cycle more convincingly begins to turn, given what is still a decided short base in the treasury market, our conviction is still high in the call that we'll see 10-year yields get back to 250 by the end of the year. And as we contemplate the balance of the year, it's important to put in context what we're anticipating in terms of the relationship between two-year yields and effective Fed funds. Historically, twos versus funds only inverts after the Fed has reached terminal and the terminal policy rate has been in place for some time. We expect that this cycle will be slightly different. And in this context, we mean that the effective Fed funds rate will continue rising into the end of the year. But given the uncertain global outlook, there's a reasonable probability that twos don't use effective Fed funds as a floor, and instead we see an earlier inversion. The one caveat is that the Fed's commitment to holding terminal in place longer this cycle will implicitly push back on any meaningful inversion in twos funds. Nonetheless, at some point, the next big trade in 2023 will be the bull steepening of the curve as the market attempts to price in rate cuts. Now, the sustainability of that trade and the Fed's willingness to push back against market expectations will be a significant point of contention by the midpoint of 2023. And this is going to leave Powell in an even more precarious position than he's already in, which is that even once rate hikes are over, the Fed could actually still be tightening financial conditions simply by pushing back against market pricing. I would argue this latest leg tighter in the FCI that we've seen is a result of exactly that. We still have some probability of rate cuts priced into 2023, and we heard from Powell on Thursday that that is not something the Fed is actively that is not something the Fed is actively considering. So by pushing back against what's priced in the very front end of the market, mechanically, as we move forward in time and get closer to those dates, those rates are going to need to come up to match the administered rates set by the central bank. So even without hiking, holding at terminal in restrictive territory could still push financial conditions tighter, probably to the detriment of risk asset valuation, stocks and credit. And all that means for overall sentiment, both in the market, but also in the economy as a whole, not to mention what's probably going to be a continued downshift in terms of the real estate market and arguably what's also the start of a move higher in the unemployment rate. Doesn't sound like a soft landing to me. While it might not ultimately end up being a soft landing, both soft landings and hard landings tend to start out the same. 
you see a reduction in sentiment, you see a modest increase in the unemployment rate, and in this case, you see monetary policymakers willing to trade a small amount of growth to ensure forward inflation expectations remain anchored. When we look at break-evens, the 10-year sector in particular is now comfortably below 250 basis points. This speaks to an investor base that has an increasing amount of confidence in the Fed's not only ability, but willingness to fight inflation at all costs. Well, Ian, as you told me in my interview, willingness but no ability. The strategists lament. So true. Although I'm not willing to admit that. Do you have that ability? Oh, the laments. In the week ahead, the treasury market has one primary data point of relevance, and that's the CPI print. Consumer prices for the month of August are seen decreasing one-tenth of a percent. This is very similar to the move that we saw in July, where food and energy prices weighed on the overall pace of inflation. Within the core series, however, expectations are for a three-tenths of a percent gain. Now, embedded in that is the wild card of used auto prices, which all else being equal, we would expect to continue to be flat or lower. We'll also be watching the shelter component, OER and rent in particular, which have lagged the strong real estate market on the way up, and we would expect would eventually start to show some signs of softening as the year comes to an end. But it's still a bit early to anticipate a moderation in the gains in OER. It goes without saying that the Fed has a general understanding of how inflation is shaping up. And still, the consistent message from monetary policymakers has been that a 75 basis point rate hike on the 21st of September is the default position unless there is a major surprise or dislocation between now and then. So with that backdrop, it's worth contemplating what type of inflation numbers would get the Fed to shift from 75 to 50 as their base case. Obviously, a negative headline CPI is already a given in light of the consensus. But if we were to see core inflation drop below zero, that might be enough to get the Fed to downshift from 75 to 50 basis points. That said, that is certainly not our baseline assumption. After all, there's still enough momentum in core prices to anticipate that there was positive momentum for consumer prices in August. The week ahead also contains three key auctions of note. We have the doubleheader on Monday, with 41 billion three-year notes, as well as 32 billion 10-year notes, followed by Tuesday afternoons, 18 billion 30 years. The logic behind the earlier schedule has to do with the settlement of the auctions on the 15th and the fact that the Fed has built in a buffer day on the 14th. Let us not forget, we also see retail sales figures for the month of August, As it currently stands, expectations are for a modest but positive increase of two-tenths of a percent. Now, investors have been closely tracking the pace of consumption, particularly given where we are in the cycle and the fact that 
Earlier in the summer, consumers were making trade-offs between the necessities, i.e. groceries and fuel, and non-necessities. As prices at the pump begin to ease, one would expect consumption to be more broad-based, and that's something that we'll be looking for on Thursday when the retail sales figures hit. Overall, we expect the longer end of the curve to remain in a range-trading environment, We continue to view 350 as the upper bound for this cycle in 10-year yields, but we'll acknowledge that the bearishness that is flowing through the front end of the curve has enough fundamental and monetary policy justification to be sustainable for the time being. Eventually, we will see a shift where two-year yields trade below effective Fed funds, but it's still too soon to assume that that will come to fruition over the course of the next several months. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with the U.S. Open Finals at hand, we cannot help but marvel at a sport that can elegantly combine the words fault and love without offending anyone. How civilized. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.